Brian. Brian, how are you? Great, great. I'm so excited to talk to you tonight. Good. Uh, really, really impressed with your books, interviews, documentary, and YouTube films. Well, thanks. And the, it, it's tough to like discuss all of the stuff because there's so much really going on, but I wanted to touch first, if it's okay with you, William, on the smiley face killers. Sure, no problem. You know, this is one of those things that I kind of thought I could handle anything, and, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not too squeamish in any of that. But with this documentary, you realize that there is a lot more going on behind the scenes in our society and culture than we're really aware. I would agree with that. And the... The interesting thing is it looks like a lot of this stuff is coming through the channels that, you know, media, social media, um, movies, music videos, and, and things of that nature. And I think that the way that you described that in the documentary was really good. And I think it's a must-watch. Everybody's got to see this because it's really, it's really very scary and super likely. I mean... People do this stuff all the time. You never think twice. You know, you never, you never really think that you should be in fear for your life for something like this. And I was wondering if you could kind of go into detail and kind of tell our listeners a little bit of the backstory and what got you interested in in the Smiley Face Killers. Sure. So the Smiley Face Killers got its name from two guys who uh, came across similar cases separately. They didn't know each other. Uh, one guy's name was Gannon. And his partner, Duarte, were in New York City and came across cases of young men being found in water. And then Gilbertson was a professor, I believe, in, uh, <clears throat> I think it was Minnesota, who noticed these similar cases. And so they reached out to each other and noticed that there was some graffiti that kind of tied this same type of phenomenon of young men disappearing at night, maybe late at a bar, being separated from friends, and then being found in water, oftentimes much later than expected after uh, very detailed searches by police, family, and things like that often being found two, three weeks later. So it got the name from these two people, Gilbertson and Gannon, the smiley face killer, because of this smiley face that showed up in certain cases. Todd Guy, there was some kind of uh, <clears throat> smiley face left on his grave, and there was other spray painting around some of these other cases. Um, so that's where it got its name. My interest in the cases came from my research into Aleister Crowley. I wrote a book called Children of the Beast. And during that research, I came across two or three figures who used this smiley face symbolism. The primary one being Alan Moore, who's a well-known comic book artist. So it kind of piqued my interest to look into the smiley face killers. Why is this same symbol being used by somebody who's a self-proclaimed occultist and uh, or magician, I should say, and this so-called series of uh, drownings, which was really more of an urban myth to me. So I didn't really know. But, you know, and I think that that's kind of what led me to really start studying the cases. I got their book, which uh, the name of their book, which is an excellent book, is called Case Studies in Forensic Drownings, which covers, I think, 14 cases that they studied firsthand, uh, got similar. It was very, I would say, it focused on forensics, so it was a very kind of 
detailed analysis of these young men's cases, all of them the same being found in water, uh, disappearing being found in water. So I read that book and started following the cases. And the, really the first case that I followed was a young man, I think it was about four years ago or three years ago. His name was Joey Labute. He was, he fit the same profile as all these other men, younger, uh, typically kind of skinnier than your average person. And, uh, so he disappeared out of a bar in Columbus, Ohio, during the Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, and you know I was like, okay, I wonder what happens. You know, what's where's this guy? So I followed all of the family stories. I followed the the local news coverage uh, that was posted online. And 19 days later, sure enough, he was found in the Scioto River or Scioto. It's actually spelled differently than it sounds, but he's found in kind of a little outlet or an eddy of the main river there, and uh, so I just literally witnessed one of these disappearances and deaths, water deaths firsthand, so that really uh, made me think that this phenomenon was not something that was was uh, fake or a myth, so, you know, and then it made me really research these older cases, I came across, there's a lot of websites, there's one called Footprints, at the water's edge. I also researched these other types of cases. People gave different names. So Manchester has the same phenomenon. They call it the pusher where young men are found in the canals or water. So uh, I reached out and contacted Gary J. I was actually in a documentary with him. I think it's available on uh, Amazon. So, you know, I just kind of was doing my research just on my own time and kept following these cases. I got in touch with uh, Jim Smith, we, he actually researched these cases earlier than I did, like about six years ago. But he had a wealth of knowledge and knew all, so many cases that I did not come across or weren't even listed in some of the uh, readily available things. So he really kind of uh, sped up or supercharged my research. And I really, I don't agree with all of his cases or people, I mean, he has a pretty wide angle lens like he'll study cases of people who aren't found in water because there still are disappearances but a lot of his cases he became the chief researcher in my documentary so what i really tried to do once i realized that this phenomenon was real was to put together that documentary and come up with conclusions about why it's happening how it's been happening what who the kind of typology of the offenders are and really show people that it was it's not a myth but that it's real, and I think I just went through my documentary. I cover about 78 cases of young men who disappear and are found in water all over the world, primarily in the U.S. and U.K., but I also had a case in, I think, Spain, in Thailand, um, and other places, which they might be happening, actually, because I just don't speak those languages. So I really recognize this now as a global phenomenon, and I think there's about two to 400 uh, legitimate victims that could be attributed to this kind of vague amorphous name, the Smiley Face Killer. The, the case in Thailand really struck a chord with me, the one that you mentioned, because you wouldn't expect this type of thing when you're on vacation, you know, having a good time, and it's just these, these prowling eyes apparently are just about everywhere. Uh, the was it in oh I can't the it one was in Spain Calso, yeah they were Spain was one but the uh, I forgot the guy's badly I think his name but he fit the same profile somebody in a mask was following him he felt drugged he was at a party spot he was delirious he disappeared and then he was found in water so uh, at a full moon party actually too which is a uh, seems to be 
in certain cer circumstances to be correlated with these cases, a full moon. I, I think it's really interesting that the full moon and occultism and the smiley face has an entire esoteric symbolism in film and culture, and I really liked how you went into that. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I didn't know, you know, I'd seen smiley faces around. I, I think that I didn't know that there was an esoteric, an exoteric or an esoteric meaning, but I think I kind of keyed into more in the use of his use of the comedian and going back to uh, Burroughs. And, and I've actually learned a lot more in my research even after I published or I, I put out the film in 2017 about it because I read... Fight Club, which the movie and the, the novel uh, involves smiley face, this smiley face symbolism. At the very end, the lead character whose alter ego is Tyler Durden shoots himself in the face and creates a smiley face, which really wasn't portrayed in the film. But uh, So, you know, you just see this, this commonality through the culture, and it's in tons of movies, even recent movies. I think uh, I had a friend of mine, Ken Amis, send me a clip from the more recent Joker that uh, Joaquin Phoenix won an Academy Award and the first killing at his apartment he takes his, and it certainly looks like it, he takes his cigar and makes a smiley face on the wall and then proceeds to kill these two guys at his apartment, or one, actually I should say. Interestingly he paid the, the big guy who he kills played the bad guy in um, True Detective which uh, is also kind of disturbing, so uh, these smiley faces are around. They're in, inter, you know, they're integrated in a film, musicians, clothing, etc. I tried to show that in my documentary and just show all the different places where, uh, whether by just putting an Easter egg in something or intentionally trying to uh, indicate to the those in the know that you know this is uh, this is this this symbol. Really loved how you incorporated the Watchmen. Um, you know, such a and other films like it's just so the smiley face has become so present, and it it really it really is kind of fed in, into this whole darkness. And it's really you know without give, I don't want to give too much away because if anybody hasn't seen it, they definitely have to check this out. It's a must see movie in my opinion because it goes into so many other areas. And really, you know, I, I do think that, you know, the, the esoteric part about the smiley face and the symbolism in film and culture, you know, after the death of David Bowie, as you mentioned in your film, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but it's almost as if there was, the floodgates were open. Isn't that true? You know, kind of. You know, I don't know fully what's going on in the underground culture. I'm not an occultist, but even the death of, uh, what is it, Black Star was the last video that he put out that's super occult, hyper-occult themes um, with the smiley face in it, smiley face symbolism. And these, these cases are still happening. We just had this kind of cycle just over December and January where Many, many men showed up dead. Uh, primarily one that I followed, followed was a guy by the name of, his name was Alex. 
Oh, I can't remember his last name now. But he was in Sacramento missing for 27 days. Yeah, found in a place that was previously searched over and over, in a very open place where a lot of people were. But uh, they caught a couple guys. They actually caught this guy named Katunsky who had abducted somebody in Michigan, which is also kind of a smiley face killer's hot spot. And they found his victim be in a closed dungeon. So it kind of fit right in with some of my conclusions that I included in the film in 2017. And this guy uh, had an animosity towards Christianity. He seemed to understand moon phases. He identified as kind of a lycanthrope or somebody who turns into a wolf. He had all kinds of wolf iconography. And it's strange how that could even fit into this whole full moon cyclical or cyclical aspect of some of these uh, cases where it certainly seems like people are moving through lunar and you know end of the year type events or dates to find victims yeah there's a deep deep occult uh vein to this and it, it really you know how alistair crowley plays into it is just pretty tremendous i mean everything since well uh, <laughs> since he was around but he is one of the main, um, I think, people responsible for at least magnifying this vein. And the, the perpetrator typology that you did in the documentary was amazing. I, I, really, um, I was really blown away by the case of, is it Edward Lamphere? Lamphere, right. That, oh my gosh, like you really don't believe that this is going on. Yeah, no, he was remarkable too. He was married. He was in the hot spot right where Gilbertson is. I think he was in Wisconsin. Uh, he lived kind of in a rural area. And uh, he he somehow keyed into this time of vulnerability of picking or finding men in bars at 2 or one thirty or 2 o'clock at night. And in his trial when he was arrested because somebody escaped, he literally had two men in his house tied up like captured and in chain bondage or chains or something like that so god only knows how many other victims he had that's what he got busted for and i think that a lot of these other um perps like other people that i covered you don't know how many victims they have same with katunsky who was recently arrested in december like you just don't know they only get busted for one but are there 10 others or some of these others sfk victims fall you know fall into their victim pool i don't know yeah, I highly doubt that they get caught on their first one. Like you said, this is right. Perpetrated. Yeah, Katunsky was. I mean, Katunsky was sloppy because it seemed like, and this is kind of like the occult aspect of his uh, actions, is that he seemed to have killed this kid, Kevin Bacon, who actually the real the real actor, Kevin Bacon, was actually aware of the case and uh, had talked about it on social media. But uh, he seemed to have killed Kevin Bacon on Christmas and kept him, after eating his testicles, kept him upside down in some dungeon for three days. So he didn't seem to be in any hurry to dispose of the body. And then the police came and asked if they could search his place. So he gave his consent. So it was a fully legal, uh, according to police procedure, search. And they they were, and I got to give credit to the Michigan police actually because. They seem to key into this guy on Grinder and what their behavior was and that there might be a dungeon because they looked for one and found one. So, uh, and, and then this guy, Kaiser, who was the chief of police who was involved in the investigation, 
who caught uh, Katunsky, you know, said, hey, guys, be careful out there. Be careful on Grinder." you know, which I hadn't heard from the police in all of my other research. I, I would have included it in my documentary. So it seems like there's something changing or these guys are more aware. But uh, you got to give full credit to these guys in Michigan for catching Katunsky and arresting him. Yeah, these these are these are it's just they're not the common perpetrators. No. These are guys yeah. creepy. Super creepy. And I think that that was like one of the elements I tried to expose in the documentary is because there's such a rare uh, unusual perpetrators that it's such a subculture within a culture that I think that's why these deaths have actually the police have kind of been uh lacks in understanding them because they don't understand they don't understand the motivation they don't understand these people but you know i was just thinking the other day i was looking through some of the more recent cases and all these people all fit into the same type all skinny generally good looking guys healthier 20 to 25 you know and uh but the other thing is that it seems like these guys are the perpetrators are uh, moving through jurisdictions either county or state jurisdictions and uh, I actually did an interview with uh, an author by the name of Kolarak who talked about a gay serial killer by the name of Eiler who kind of operated in the SFK area. I think it was Indiana and Illinois. And he would shoot in between um, jurisdictions to commit his crime to confuse the police, knowingly doing it and going out at night and bars and hunting and stuff like that. And I think he had 12 confirmed convictions. And she said, that he, um, and this, I think this took place in the 80s or 90s, she said that she believed, without having pure evidence to convict, uh, put anybody under arrest, but she believed he operated with another person. And uh, that's interesting, because I think that these guys are operating groups. I wouldn't be surprised if Katutsky was working with somebody else. But uh, it was interesting, too, because I heard from another investigator that it was Kolarik's book was found in Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment when he was arrested. So Dahmer knew about Eiler. Wow. That's the thing. Is this is like, it's, it's a kind of, it's these, this typology, this, these, these perpetrators are the things that they're looking at in the media, what they consider cool. Um, I mean, the list of movies, like you said, Fight Club, Stranger Things, Sons yes. of Anarchy, Mentalist, it just goes on and on. Yeah, there's a lot of references. I mean, even Stranger Things threw in a smiley face right there at the end of season, first season, season six. So people are kind of aware. No, you don't know whether they're putting it in there as a, as a secret message or to elicit interest or to show that they're in the know. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know who did Stranger Things, but they're definitely putting in occult tags and markers. There's no question about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, even some, I've, I mean, you can check out the interviews I've done on YouTube on so many different people that have brought in my understanding of these cases. But one was also a guy by the name of McDougal who uh, did a book about another gay serial killer called Kraft who operated in Southern California, literally had 100 victims. And McDougal himself said the same thing, independent of Kolarik, that she, he believed that Kraft was working with somebody else as well. Because at certain instances, when the bodies were dumped, the car was moving at a high rate of speed. So it's highly, highly unlikely that a driver could have also taken a body and thrown it out of a car, you know, going 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. 
So th these are these are instructive kind of things. These guys, serial killers, I think, uh, whose whose targets are men, uh, can instruct this SFK phenomenon. Because I wouldn't be surprised if some of these, you know, like I said earlier, there's other victims of some of these perps. You know, it really gets scary if you start talking about, you know, even a couple or a few or a group of people. Um, it doesn't take many to make this absolutely horrific, uh, given the case, I believe it was, it was it Anthony Urania, that black car. I mean, these, these cars, literally this car took a U-turn and goes up a one-way street stalking this guy. And that's how bold and brazen some of these actions are because you've got to consider the time of night the condition of the uh, victims, and it's, yeah, I mean, they're just, you're just a sitting duck. Yeah, and I mean, Urena probably never saw it coming, you know, he's wasted, he's alone, he probably thought he was safe, he's a tough guy, can probably handle himself, right? But if you're up against two or three guys in a car, and that's a theme that happens, like the original uh, victim zero, his name was McNeil, who was found in a uh, water treatment facility in the Hudson Bay, People said that he left the bar, was throwing up, and somebody said there was a car following him. So when McNeil would stop to throw up, the car would stop. He would start walking again, the car would start following again. So it's hyper scary, you know, that uh, these things happen and, that, you know, that the people are keying into these victims. And the same thing happened with, uh, I think it was Scott Bake Radle that was up in either Minnesota or Wisconsin. His dad said... There are groups of people in a car following around, going from city to city to look for victims. So, um, it certainly seems like this is out there. Yeah, and it seems like this is something that is a secret. Uh, people don't want to talk about it, even even when it, it is. It, there's so many cases, and it, it just kind of seems like a secret. I think it's so creepy what you said um, about, you know, yeah, two or three guys in a car. One case that really kind of floored me was the, the uh, oh, I, 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 he had two tours in Iraq. He was, uh, he had come back. He was a tough guy and not the kind of guy you would expect. I mean, a lot tougher than me. And uh, just like you said, quickly and easily disabled. And it seems yeah, like... Yeah, his last name was James. I think that was outside of Philadelphia. And he ended up in a, ended up in a pond. And I was like, oh my gosh, it really doesn't matter how tough you are. I mean, the use, and I don't want to, again, I mean, I know your doc's been out there for a while, but I don't want to give too That's much. That's okay. I mean I, don't mind. I mean, I think that you don't really know what's going on, whether these guys are getting drugged, whether some people have speculated there's like, you know, taser or something involved that, that uh, immobilizes these guys or some type of aerosol. I don't know. I don't know, you know, I don't know if all of them fall into the same. I truly don't believe it's one connected group, although I think some of these guys say that it is. I think that there are groups communicating. I mean, there was a very re recent article, which I highly re recommend people read, which is uh, was in the Daily Beast, and it was, the author was Nicole Wisensee Egan, and she has done a lot of research into Cosby as well. I think she has a podcast. But she wrote a book about, or sorry, an article about the death of Dakota James in Pittsburgh. But her article is stunning because she traced him being, like a test run was done on Dakota James. Where he, uh, he called a friend and said, come pick me up. He didn't know where he was. There was a black like limousine involved. 
And this happened about a month before he disappeared. And uh, in her um, article, which I reread recently, she she was in contact with Gannon and Gilbertson, who said they were online, and somebody gave them a passcode for some type of internet connection, and and they wanted to look at their face through the video camera before they turned it in. So it seems like there is some type of internet connection to this. I mean, I speculated on the dark web. They talked about the dark web specifically, but we came to that conclusion uh, independently. I don't really have any contact with uh, Gilbertson again, and although I totally respect their work, and I do recommend their Oxygen series, which came out in 2019. It was a six-part Oxygen series that covered some of the earlier cases they covered, and Dakota James, which you can rent on iTunes or Amazon Prime. Highly recommend that. Very interesting. Yeah, there's there's so many cases. It's so it's so creepy that the it seems like it's difficult to say, but it seems like this is accelerated. Yes, this phenomenon is accelerated by by the media, and we're talking about people who are acclaimed artists and authors and directors, and it's it's basically. You know, it's it become a fetish of sorts, and I like that you say say that that there's. Uh, it doesn't matter how tough you are. This is this is going. This is a possibility. It reminds me of that movie, Pulp Fiction, and you mentioned this in your documentary. It's the, the perpetrators that are committing these crimes are not who you expect. I mean, one was a police officer in Pulp Fiction. I thought that was very accurate. The, I mean, just be, because it's like some of these guys are stand up, married. You would never expect it. The never expect it, exactly. That's the whole thing. Is like Some of these dudes are bisexual, but they never express their bisexuality. I actually just heard of a case that took place in Perth, Australia, all the way out where some guy, it was the same kind of M.O. He liked young men, and he would hang out at bars and drug them and film them, and he actually just got sentenced in 2019, and he was a married... He was married with kids. So he had a, like a whole side thing, going, you know, side interest. And they asked him why he did it. He said, I forgot, he said something really strange. So that's, it's, it's very unusual. Like it's hard to figure out. But once you start really researching the cases, and it takes time. And I think one of the, the barriers to understanding is also people have already discounted this publicly as a uh, urban myth or... Um, as you're a conspiracy theorist, or they kind of throw things at you. But there's been a couple articles. The FBI researched and discounted this in 2010, the phenomenon. But they based themselves on all this evidence and facts that occurred before 2010 that have been only publicized. There's a lot of information that's not publicized. People should know that. There's a lot of independent researchers. There's a lot of stuff that Gilbertson and Gannon know that have not been publicized. But the FBI discounted. There's also an article that's been bandied about called "Debunking the Smiley Face Killers Myth" or something like that, which was done by the Center for Homicide Research. And if you're bored, you can listen to me debunk their paper. Um, it was done by like ten different people, so it looked has all the kind of academic legitimacies without any substance. So I pretty much tear that apart. And I think my documentary tears it apart, frankly. If you watch my documentary, you can see a whole different set of facts that they never addressed. So I think that, that those are kind of barriers for understanding. And I think that there's also an element of 
oh, you're homophobic, or these are, you know, why are you involved in this? And I think that's nonsense because I think that, you know, heterosexual men do horrible things to women, too. So, um, you know, sometimes it's backwards. It goes the other way where women are black widows. So, um, anyway, the real main reason I focused on this is because I didn't understand it, and then I realized the public didn't understand it. You know, the, the, the first time I got really interested in your work is a close friend of mine had a friend of his son who was found in a similar way, and we'll have to talk about this off-air because okay. it was so creepy, but I started looking into it, and your stuff popped up, and I'll tell you, William, it's, it's really, really scary that there is, in my mind, beyond a doubt, large factions of groups, it, it, even individuals across the country, across the world, that are into uh, things we would never expect, and they are literally tracking down hunting and getting kids, for all intents and purposes, barely 21. I would say most of them are barely 21, too. I think, what would be oldest? Not that old. Well, it depends how far you want to go, but there's very few over 30, you know. And yeah, the ones that were older actually look super young. They're not. They're almost all not swarthy or hairy. Um, like there was one I studied. He was thirty-eight, but the guy looked like he was twenty-five. Paul Sam Polis was his name. P U L L E S. <clears throat> yeah, there's there's groups that are are. are oh, have you into- have you ever heard of the Adelaide family? No. Yeah, I would look up the Adelaide family that operated in Adelaide, which is the southern part of Australia. But only one guy got popped. One guy got uh, arrested and convicted for this series of young men being abducted or drugged. And they used this drug called Mandrax, which was uh, it was like a mix of two, like pseudoephedrine and barbiturates or something. But that's how they would... They would give them a drink, and they would drive around in a car, find hitchhikers or something, then offer them a beer that would be drugged. They would be taken back and raped and just uh, abused for as long as they felt like it, and then they would either be let go or murdered. And the guy, the chief guy's name was Spencer Bevan von Einem, E-I-N-E-M, and you can look him up, but... It fits the exact same profile of SFK and even the broken video that I included in my documentary where they're driving around looking for victims and a young guy who fits the profile of the victims, SFK victims in real life, walks up to the car. I don't know if you remember that part. but um, The Adelaide family is really remarkable because they we were networked. There were people networked, and it's so crazy because I think Spencer Vaughn, uh, Bevan von Einem was convicted in, or arrested in 1984 and the police in Australia are still searching for other people who are involved with him to this day and there was a there's actually a uh, a woman who's doing a podcast right now looking back at the Adelaide family and talking to people who knew what were going on this one guy I forgot his name but he was um, kind of uh within the gay community, and they knew exactly what... And so a lot of these guys were also later convicted who were suspected of being in league with Spencer Von Einem. I mean, it's just... It's just a, it'll shock... It's so terrifying that people like that are out there organized. 
um, drugging people, and it, it just fits right in with the the whole SFK phenomenon. Yeah, if this is not like it's, that's what that broken video. Oh my gosh! Like how anyone could consider that entertainment in any way, shape, or form. It was horrific. If anybody hasn't seen that, they have to check it out. Called Broken, and I believe um, I'm trying to think of where. I, well, I saw it on your documentary. That's the best way. Check out the documentary, Smiley Face Killers. But it's 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 pretty crazy. This is like a real thing, and I think that the West Memphis Three, Damian Eccles, and some of these other individuals kind of fall into this. And there's a Hollywood aspect that is really deeply entrenched. Yes, no question. And I mean, Damian Eccles is friends with or associates with um, Genesis P. Orridge and all these guys, and he's got Hollywood connections with Don Johnny Depp, and they were in this film together called IRL, so there's definitely an underground that uh, uh, people who are very strange. Um, the case, going back to the case of Anthony Urania, where the Black Heart did a U-turn and went up, a one-way street after this guy. These are very bold and brazen acts, and that's what I think. I'm with you, William. I think that maybe people are working together. I think so. I think that there may be lone wolves, but I think that there are definitely <laughs> groups, at least two, who are working together. I think Urania case is a perfect example. I talked about Scott Bake Radle. Some of these other cases... You know, it just doesn't take one guy. There's probably more people involved. <clears throat> you know, Chris Jenkins had was in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, but he was a very strong guy and was a kind of a goalie for lacrosse. And how do you take this guy down, even if he's had a few beers? Uh, the more more probable he ended up, they ended up finding out that he had a clump of hair in his hand, as if somebody was holding his his hand behind his head and he was grasping on it. How does that happen with just one person with a strong guy? And one of the oddities his family said is that his body had no bruises, and he was always getting bruises because people were throwing, you know, shooting a freaking lacrosse ball at him all the time, so he was always heavily bruised. So that mean, that indicates that he was kept somewhere for some time to heal, which is uh, chilling. And it seems like they're probably kept in some kind of dungeon or something. I mean, kind of like what we saw in Pulp Fiction. And I, I kind of want to get back to, like, the perpetrators and how in Pulp Fiction we have a cop and another guy at a pawn shop or something. I can't remember quite. But they have a whole setup, and it's, like you said, people are working together in these strange groups that have connections all over the city, probably. And they are into occult practices as well. I know you're not as into the occult thing, but I think you're pretty knowledgeable about Aleister Crowley and how he kind of fits into some of this. Well, that's interesting you say that because one of the, you know, fender typology I included is Peter Christofferson, whose part was definitely a cultist, who knew everything, actually had Crowley's paintings in his, where he was living, in his books and stuff like that. So, but they had the ideology. They had that idea of you know, black magic and do what thou wilt and don't care about the consequences. And at a very intellectual level, like Peter Christofferson was a very intelligent guy. And that was the decision he made, you know. So, um, you know, some of these guys may be more into the occult than we know. I don't know. But I know Peter Christofferson himself was always involved in the occult. 
he was the one that was on, was it Master Chef? If I'm not no, that was Stephen Port. That was Stephen Port. Now, that, the Stephen Port case really freaked me out as well because even watching, you know, this guy looks like just such a stand-up guy. These are just Ted Bundy's all over the place. And it's, they're intelligent. They're usually well-to-do. They're not, they're not, they're not homeless. They're, they're established. They're intelligent. They're, you know, not what you would expect. And they are into the occult black magic and these Hollywood, I don't, I don't know what you would call them. I guess they're, they're almost like Hollywood uh, factions of people like James Franco. Um, let's see. You, you mentioned Johnny Depp. I mean, is there an actual tie to this? With the Johnny Depp, Damian Eccles thing, it's hard to deny. But with some of this other stuff, like that James Franco movie, uh, I'm trying to remember, Kink? That's Kink. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I included that in my documentary. Yeah, no, these are... Uh it's pretty disturbing. I mean, I think a lot of those guys who were supporting um, Damian Eccles and trying to get him out of jail were into the occult. So, it, I mean, there's a, like a sequence in, you know, Go Driving with Coffee where that the, the comedian drives with celebrities. And Margaret Jo show was asking, uh, what's the guy with the comedy show? I can't remember. Who's, you know, just a car driving, driving with coffee. What's his name? Skipping my mind. Anyway, she's asking him about, do you know Genesis P. Orge? So how does she know that? And is also supporting Damien Eccles. And then you've got Henry Rollins, who's supporting Damien Eccles. You have all, you know, you've got some pretty, in my opinion, pretty shady characters who are, uh, you know, who were trying to get him out of jail and successfully did get him out of jail in 2011. So how networked are they? I don't know. I don't know what happens behind the scenes. I don't know what goes on in Hollywood. Well, I think it's pretty mind-blowing. A lot of the smiley face symbolism that you incorporated in the documentary, I think the one that shocked me the most, even though I was aware of it, was, again, I mean, the, and I hate to get political, but the Barack Obama and Joe Biden friendship bracelets with smiley faces and a piece of pizza on them, which we know can be part of Pizzagate. But just a coincidence that those are both on the same bracelet. It's, not, it's not a coincidence because that little blue flower, too, is also kind of a pedophile insignia where that little blue flower, too. So the, it would be outside of the realm of it would be extraordinary if they weren't connected. And Joe Biden has like a kitty sniffing problem. He's kissing his granddaughter on the lips, which is totally freaky. Um, the fact that he had had twenty percent of the Democratic electorate uh, behind him for the nomination is just just beyond disturbing. It's incredible, but uh, it's highly unlikely that those are random. If you look at the what was it, the Series Seven leaks to WikiLeaks, they were talking about getting. $65,000 worth of hot dogs. Who has the, who wants to buy $65,000 of actual real hot dogs? And then you see the same kind of, um, you know, chit-chat in the Podesta emails. Talking about maps and handkerchiefs and walnut sauce and Haitian kids and all this crazy stuff. And is this, it really seems like this, the selling of this, the, the, in the media, like that, that the kink from James Franco and what that broken um, from the that guy was a piece of work. The other producer, yeah, Peter Christopherson. 
yeah, can we just yeah. put background into Peter? Because, wow, I was amazed with how much, like, the, the amount of videos. I, I mean, for famous, famous bands. Yeah, no, incredible. Uh, Robert Plant, Rage Against the Machine. He was really no he was really in that group, in that underground group. <clears throat> I mean not that far not that far underground because he was hanging out with all these very famous people. Peter Gabriel, he did all the art for that. He did that strange kind of monolithic thing for Led Zeppelin. Um, he was involved in the same type of art who did art for Pink Floyd. So he you know, this guy is very inte- fire intelligence. His dad was a uh, college professor, so he comes from a higher level. I mean, that's the strange thing about Crowley, too, is that he's hyper-intelligent as well, but evil. But also at the, really, at the 1% of intelligence. And maybe Peter Christofferson, he got, I I assume that he got away with some stuff, is my my guess. It sure seems like it. I mean, it just just seems like, I mean, some of the the, the extent that he would go to quote-unquote artistically portray himself, it reminded me of, like, Abramovich, like, I mean, his, his group, he literally, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, scat, scatology. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, there's a picture of him wiping human excrement on his face, and he, I think he said somewhere else, like, it's holy, it's from me, it's holy, you know, so he, that's straight out of Aleister Crowley, where your body you know, influences are sacred, right? So, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's bad. If you really look through a lot of the stuff Coyle did, uh, the references, the visual references, if you look at the pedophilia in uh, Love's Secret Domain, that video, it's right in your face. Have you seen the Love's Secret Domain video? I have not. Yeah, uh, just brace yourself. Was that included in your documentary? I don't recall. I don't think I put that in there. It wasn't quite relevant, but uh, it's the other guy's name was John Balance. It was John Balance and Peter Christofferson. And John Balance is basically dancing with underage tie boys who, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's basically straight pedophilia without the acts, I guess. Correct. And this, the occult aspects, what, what powers do you think, I mean, this, this going all back to Crow, Crowley and, and, and him really believing that he was really accessing powers, and I mean, it's a huge question, but it appears like Crowley was trying to get power through transgression. Yes, absolutely. I think that, that, that he gained power through transgression. The, um, the only sin is restriction. And he was involved in kind of a lot of his ritualization to get power was through sex magic. So the use of sex. So, um, yeah, it gets really disturbing. Let's just, I'll just leave it at that. So, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, these guys may be super deep into Crowley. That's the whole thing is that they know some of the secret rituals of the OTO. So Peter Christofferson, Burroughs, and... Timothy Leary were all members of the Illuminates of Thanateros, right? Thanateros is sex and death. So all these guys are very uh, potent countercultural figures, but does the counterculture recognize that they're also occultists? That's the thing is, a lot of the 
You got to speak that up. I didn't hear you. What you say? But that's the thing is a lot of the occult is just getting funneled right into everybody's psyche through, I mean, already it's, you know, S&M went from something that it was like, oh, hell no, to now it's just kind of like it's accepted, but kind of keep it out of my face. And this happened very quickly, this, this, this whole thing. And I think this has something to do with the smiley face killers, the Pulp Fiction type, you know, get the gimp. Um, there is actual and probably a lot of deaths taking place because of some of these behaviors that Hollywood and the occult are proliferating. Yes, I agree with that. Do you hear about the guy who was, he was a, uh, I wish I could remember his name. Um, he was a, I think he was a big time, a fairly well known, his name is Skip Chasen. And he had a dungeon. His his dungeon name was Master Skip, I think. And he accidentally killed somebody in his dungeon, I think last year or the year before, um, and never got charged. He just went back to his job. And he was doing deals for, like, Brad Pitt. I think it was at one of these big uh, talent agencies. I think it was... Uh, oh, I can't remember which one. But, yeah, Skip Chase and look him up. But... Yeah, something went wrong. He wrapped some dude up in plastic, but here in in LA, they won't uh, they won't prosecute you for that. It just reminds me a lot of um, you know the the way that Hollywood this all kind of started, which was you know uh, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the whole scene portrayed there, and it didn't really go into the pedophilia because again, we're in Hollywood, but there was mention of, you know, this, this started a long time ago. These, these, almost these young boys, young women used as currency of sorts. And where, where is this headed? Do you think this is going to continue? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be stopping. The guy's name was Skip Chasey, C-H-A-S-E-Y. And there's an article from June 29th, 2018, page 6. S&M Loving Hollywood exec. Keeps job after man dies in his sex dungeon. And it was uh, according to Mark Ebner, who's a very well-known kind of Hollywood reporter. But, yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't expect it to, you know, it definitely ebbs and flows, but just what happened over December was like, there were other cases. There was this kid, Alex Holden, who I tried to remember his last name earlier. But uh, there were a few other cases and other still disappearances, people being found in water. So uh, I don't expect it to stop. And I don't. I, one of the, the unfortunate things is that uh, the law enforcement community doesn't seem to really care or hasn't sent out a warning. So you know that's a huge disappointment for me because I've done the homework to like I've actually researched over a hundred cases of these, you know, being found in water. So. So uh, it's a shame. And I don't want to like ruin this for anybody if they haven't seen the documentary, but can we kind of go through some of the similarities that all these all these cases have, you know? And because I think we skipped that, and that I, that might be important. Sure. I mean, all the cases they're younger men. You know, people ask me for definitions. Why is this got this name? Why is it this group? Because other people die, right? But what what sets this kind of group? into its own set or subset is that they're younger men out the all these cases took place at night they usually took place somebody is at a musical venue uh 
at a sports event or at a bar. They are by themselves at some point. They disappear for some time and are usually found later than to be expected. And they're typically people who don't drown. Uh, they're usually young, athletic. Um, and then, after a lengthy search by police and family, they're found in water, sometimes up to 40 days. For example, Dakota James was found 40 days later. He was actually a swimmer in high school. So it's like hard to believe that he would drown in water. Like a lot of these guys were due in water. I think uh, the other guy, who William Hurley in Boston, was also a uh, Navy man. So he was used to water. These guys are all comfortable. And they, they would typically, a lot of the water they're found in is not raging rivers or anything like that. They're ponds. They are placid. So you would have to think that they are so drunk that they can, you know, they're able to walk there but can't get themselves out, which is really hard to believe. And a lot of these guys, I think I show in my movie too, that uh, according to CCTV, they're upright and walking around like Kelleher out of Boston as well. Dakota James is able to type on his phone. So they're not just out of their minds wasted. They might be buzzed. They Some of them haven't even drink, drank, actually. So I think that's what typifies this set of deaths or mur murder. Almost all of them are murders, in my opinion. I might have, some of these people might have accidentally. But if you look at the cases, it's really hard to believe. If you look at Shane Montgomery outside of Philadelphia, he supposedly drowned in three feet of water. You can see the people searching for him in the river, and then he pops back. They found his keys, actually. They couldn't find his body, but they found his keys, and then all of a sudden he magically appears in the same river that was previously searched, which is another common theme. Previously searched, heavily searched, and then, oh, there they are. That's that's the same thing that happened with Dakota James. He was, he was found down river in areas that had been searched either two weeks ago or the weekend before. So why is he there now? So that I would call that the general smiley face killers phenomenon. A couple of questions that I have to ask is, uh, um, one was, the objects in the, that were left near the Hiawatha statue, it seemed like, yeah, once people had already come through, checked things out, and then somebody would leave an object near the Hiawatha statue. Right. That That's La Crosse, Wisconsin, right? Yeah. I think that's yeah. So you know that's another strange event. Is why is people belong people's belongings in places they shouldn't be? Um, I was told that that area of the park was also a cruising site. I haven't confirmed that. I don't really know, but you know people send me stuff. So you know that whole situation's odd. Why was Nate Capper fro found frozen? Who would fr freeze him? That indicates uh, some type of criminal sophistication and planning. You know, like they're trying to confuse the police. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, strange, mild... I mean, some of these people clearly had cigarette burns. Some people got hit in the head. Patrick McNeil, uh, his autopsy was analyzed by Cyril Wecht, and he had burns over the top of his body that police never disclosed to the family until they got the autopsy report. So there's a lot of information on those autopsy reports we don't know. Dakota James, they, the family got the autopsy, and Cyril Weck flat out said he had like a noose around his neck, and I can see the pictures, you can see the blood. So why is the blood still on there, and this whole thing still on his body if he's been in the water 40 days? Things do not add up. 
Sorry, can you can you speak into the microphone more? I can't hear you. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, no. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that strange, elongated cube that we were talking about before that was on album covers and everything else, uh, Pink Floyd. That, that, I believe it was Christopherson, no? Yeah, Christopherson. Yeah, Peter Christopherson, yeah. Is there any mention of what is, is that like a black cube of Saturn that's been extended to look more phallic, or what exactly are we looking at? That was, I think it was on the Led Zeppelin um, album cover, right? I think it was just kind of a mysterious monolith. I think that was it. It actually reminded me more of the monolith from 2001. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Very strange, very strange. There's strange stuff. I mean, all of his art, if you look at it, it's twisted. There's, like, melting faces and all kinds of strange, peculiar stuff in his art. He was very, uh, very countercultural, I would say. You know, you've done a very thorough and painstaking job at making um, the documentary, which I believe is kind of a selfless act of yours to help people realize that there is true evil out there. And help people take care of, you know, take certain precautions anyway to avoid these scenarios. Can you kind of go into that and just tell people what to do, what not to do? I mean, it's obvious, but. Well, I think at this point, for men and women, when they go out at night, you might as well be going out into the jungle in like Vietnam or something. Everybody has to come back alive. So you can't leave your friends. You have to stay together, make sure that you're not getting drugged. There is a, a whole problem with people getting drugged in bars really all over the world and you can get very shady uh bartenders and things like that and i think that's a common element of a lot of these cases they're getting unintentionally drugged and there's people who survived i actually included one guy who clearly got drugged and was in boston and ended up in the strangest place and he ended up going to the court and you can see him say sorry your honor i think i was drugged um so you really just have to be careful things are getting more and more dangerous, you know, it's kind of like the Bible says, uh, at the end of times, the, things will be like the days of Noah, so people are getting more vicious, and uh, I think that, you know, I mean, these, these are, it takes a certain personality to, to do these awful things, so you got to really be careful at night, and young people are probably the most confident thinking that they're safe, and they're really not, and I think that that's why these cases happen more like this, then there's a string of cases of women disappearing at bars because women are much more uh, paranoid or totally aware than men. Men just don't see, you know, they don't care if they're sitting on a corner, you know, drunk, whereas women see themselves, you know, in my opinion, more as targets. So I do think that you really have to be, you really be careful. And if you look like any of these, if you look at the pictures from my documentary and you look like the general person in there, you should be very uh, aware that you could be a target. You'd be a target by by a group of men. You don't want to be a victim. So, Yeah, you would never expect, I mean, as a guy, you would never expect it. If you put me in college, and that's, and I would never know. And I was always at the, you know, I was definitely out till one, having beers and stuff like that. I, I never would have thought myself a victim, ever. Ever. So, not of this, you know, maybe a fight or something like that, or getting a 
group fight with three of friends with other, you know, groups or something, those could happen. But I would never have thought myself as like, hey, you want to get in my car? I can give you a ride home. Do you want to have a drink? You know, I never would have expected something like that to happen. So I think a lot of these families, if you look at the families of the victims, they're destroyed. They're distraught. They want to know what happened. They want to know how their loved one ended up dead in a river or in water. So even, you know, even one of these cases is heartbreaking. When you see 100 cases, you know, you don't want to end up as that victim. You don't want your kids to end up as that victim, you know, as they head off to college. I've had, I've been a guest on other shows talking about this. And I think the colleges really will, are incentivized to cover up these horrible events. They would much rather call them accidental drownings because there's a lot at stake. I think it was on Derek Gilbert's show and he's like, oh, it's like the Amityville, like Amity in the Jaws or whatever. Hey, the beach is open, everything's clean, you know. So, um... There's a lot of forces that are against the truth of this coming out. You know, there's some, I was looking over, uh, actually just yesterday, the Smiley Face Killer's fake documentary that's on YouTube with 1.5 million views. And the whole thing is as fake as a $3 bill. So why is that out there? I think that's an important question. Why is this kind of fake documentary with the same title that they didn't come up with that... Gannon and Gilbertson came up with at least 15 years ago. Why is that documentary out there for free? And why is it, you know, basically flypaper for so many people? Exactly. There, it seems like it's, <laughs> there's a power club. It's, I, I hate to go back to like the fight club analogy, but it does seem that these, you know, there are friendships like that are around this strange behavior and, uh, you know, it's, it's really scary that, you know, I think Peter Christofferson in, in your doc, uh, as far as being the one individual who probably pushed this beyond the boundaries of everyone else, it's everywhere. Also being a chaos magician. And you mentioned he was also early industrial music, right. magician, producer. You mentioned he died in 2010. Were those, uh, was it a normal death? No, but he was in Thailand. He was retired in Thailand, which is a strange place because it ties into this, that whole Thailand. Epperly was his name, the guy who died in Thailand. So a lot of these guys from Europe end up in, you know, Swedish, English. They like Thailand, so he was one of them. I don't think he was in good health. I think he died young, maybe 57 or 58, fairly young. Well, he, he definitely did his best to promote the worst, and that, that was pretty bad. And, and you're doing the exact opposite. I just wanted to thank you again, William, for coming on and spreading some truth and sharing some knowledge that could actually save some lives. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk with you. All the best. Take care. All right, you as well. Bye-bye. Yeah.